Love Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 23rd, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, big show tonight. Um, We have seen all these polls coming out. And many of them from one of our favorite polling firms, Public Policy Polling. So we thought it was time, and Tim helped us deliver. Uh, We're going to have Tom Jensen on the show in about 20 minutes, talking about just a myriad of his recent polls and some other things uh, as well. So we're looking forward to that. Um, I guess to start off, the topic, the political topic of the week this past week and the political topic of surely this coming week, and possibly I think this thing could be more weeks. Um, the way it's going would be the um, confirmation process of Brett Kavanaugh. Um, I think when we were on the show last week, we didn't mention as much because, you know, they had had some hearings and it hit a standstill, maybe some recesses or what have you. And then we had started hearing about um, some allegations from back um, and Brett Kavanaugh's past, we didn't know names or much about it at the time, so it's hard to say anything. But since that time, we've learned a lot more. Um, a, a, a psychological doctor from Stanford who um, lived in the same area growing up, we'll say, um, has some pretty substantive allegations. I mean, there's really some you know ties there, and so definitely – that all needs to be fleshed out. Amazingly, the Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee, Charles Grassley in particular, um, were never seemed to be 100% until just today on if Dr. Ford would testify. Um, Catherine, what are your thoughts on how this thing's unfolded? Well, I mean, Chuck Grassley and, you know, the whole <laughs> bunch of them are, are, you know, treating this like it's a little bump in the road and, you know, we're going to plow through this, I think Grassley said this morning. Um, You know, this is a very serious accusation. This is a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. So we need to get to the bottom, uh, get to the truth, understand what happened, give uh, Dr. Ford, Professor Ford, um, the opportunity to get to share her story in a comfortable and um, non-threatening environment, and uh, and do, and the same for um, Brett Kavanaugh. Um, but I, I'm I, this morning on the news shows they were all like, I don't know, I just dislike the the attitude of uh, well, you know, we're going to get through this. Well. It's not a um, it's not a little bump in the road. It's very serious, and it needs to be treated with um, serious treated in a serious nature. And uh, I hope that they'll all um, recognize that in the coming few days before she um, before Dr. Professor Ford um, testifies, because we wouldn't. I would. I hope that they can be respectful and uh, responsible in that process. Yes. Um, I think part of the um, negotiations, if you will, was which order that they would testify in. I think I just read that um, she will testify, then he'll testify again, which I don't know if he would have testified again without this, or this will strictly be on this, or at least likely the Democrats will talk about this. I, I kind of wonder what the Republicans actually ask him about if they'll you know, try to diffuse things by asking about just totally other matters. Um, Tim, how much do you think the order matters in this? Well, I, 
totally matters because anything she says, he'll know about, and then he can come in and contradict everything she says. But anything he says, she will not have a chance to come back afterwards and contradict that. What the Republicans are trying to do, uh, and I'm not blaming anybody for anything, by the way. What they're trying to do is pretty straightforward. They're trying to set up a total he said, she said scenario. And if it's that, it gets down to, well, who do you believe? And if that's all it gets down to, then they feel like they can go ahead and press forward and and uh, get him confirmed. And they're going to do that for political reasons, too, because if, well, let's put it this way, this morning, NBC Wall Street Journal poll came out giving the Democrats a 12-point lead on the generic ballot. It was eight points a month ago, six the month before that. There's a wave building. And if they don't get this guy confirmed, I think they feel like it's going to be even worse than that because then their voters will blame them for not getting the job done. So I, I, I think I think that's what's going on, and I don't really know what's going to become of all of this because uh, they don't seem to be willing to uh, bring anybody else up there under oath to corroborate what she's saying. So uh, I guess we'll wait and see on Thursday, guys. Yeah, um, and you talk about you know the, the way voters are viewing this. It seems like a lot of the ballot box in November, it's a lose-lose situation for Republicans, whereas if they, they some of their voters blame them and they don't, you know, give votes that way, it seems like this is causing them to do even worse among female voters, and they're slipping there too. And if they begin to lose, you know, white women in bigger numbers, then the Republicans will just um, suffer further, and there's a lot of, you know, key races that they could win in some environments, but you start to lose votes, um, then the Senate may flip, and then the House uh, will change over even harder. Um, Catherine, do you think they're at risk either way? Oh, I absolutely think they're at risk um, because of the women's vote. I mean, they talked about this. Cokie Roberts talked about this on um on uh, this week, this morning, with uh, Matthew Dowd. Matthew Dowd was great this morning on this week, by the way. I'd love to get him back on. Um, yes, I think, I mean, w- women are paying attention, and they're, you know, aside from this, you know, 65 or 75 women who wrote this letter in support of um, Kavanaugh, I think there's a lot of women who are looking very closely at the Republican Party and the way. The, their Republican senators are um, treating this um, this matter. I think I, I definitely think they should be worried. I think that's why they agreed to have her come. You know, yeah, David. Um, uh, go ahead. I, I, I was just going to um, piggyback on what Catherine was saying. She makes a very astute point here. The Anita Hill hearings, it is believed, and I, I believe that too, probably produced the year of the woman in 1992, some months later, when a slew of Democratic women attained high office. The number of women running for office in the United States this year is at an all-time record And believe me, every candidate out there is watching this thing. If this woman is treated as Anita Hill was treated by that all-male judiciary panel, I might add, back then. And I say that because all 11 Republicans on this one are male. If that it happens again, as angry as voters already are, they will come to the polls with blood in their eyes. Believe, believe me. 
they had better be very, 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 very careful here. But I just don't know if it's in them. And the reason I say that, I don't think they have, I think they lack the courage to stand up and, and, and do the right thing. Now, I, I believe they're too afraid of Donald Trump. I really believe that. Do y'all believe that? Well, the question well, is, are they, afraid of Donald afraid Trump? Of are they more afraid of Donald Trump or their voters? That's the, that's going to. That's going to be the deciding factor in those senators' minds. Like, yeah, I, I, who, I think it's their I base. To, I mean, it's not just the base, it's, though. It's, it's got to, they've got to, they've got to think about the base and the other uh, Republican voters beyond the base, beyond oh, the, the Trump supporters. They, but that's the problem they have is you you have to win in the primary, but then you have to win in the general. And their primary electorate looks so much different than the general electorate that it just puts them in such a bind. And I do think this, in 2016, they had about 16 candidates. I forgot the number. There were so many choices and many, many choices better than Donald Trump. Many, many more qualified you know, choices than Donald Trump. I mean, people that I wouldn't necessarily want, but I would want them over Donald Trump. And I think the overwhelming majority of Americans would too. And Republican voters chose Donald Trump. And so I think, you know, I think you have to lay a lot of this on the base. I mean, Jimmy Carter wrote a book, a gov in a democracy, a government is as good as its people. And in this case, a party is as good as its people. And Donald Trump's what they want. Um, so, so I don't think that can be um, dismissed. Now, one thing, uh, speaking of their base and their voters, and Catherine, since I kind of – we were trying to talk at the same time, I'll give you the first stab at this. <laughs> CNN had a focus, rather educated-looking Republican women. I mean, they were not the folks that Jordan Klepper finds outside the rally on The Daily Show, which also are part of the, their electorate. But these ladies were, you know, seemingly more educated and sophisticated. And one of these people apparently had was a candidate in Florida – uh, for state house in the past, and she basically said, you know, boys will be boys, and you know, it wasn't like he, it wasn't he said she said it was like, yeah, he may have done it, but who hadn't done it when they were a seventeen-year-old boy, uh, which is you know kind of just crazy to think about because I would speculate <laughs> that the overwhelming majority of males in the country and the world and everything else have not committed rape. Um, but, Catherine, did you see this piece of video with this focus group? And just what are your thoughts on that whole line of thinking? I didn't see that, but if I had, I probably would have thrown something at the TV. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is so – the thing that's so disappointing about that is that not only um, – it not only uh, – treats women badly but it also treats men badly or young young men young women and young men i mean are we are we really saying that boys can't control themselves we can't teach boys how to control themselves we can't instill in them the values of consent and that no means no we can't do that is that is that what we're saying is that where we're at really in this country that we cannot control or, or teach young men how to control themselves, and we and, and we should just and, and young women should just accept it. That's just you know, it's just shocking to me. Yeah, and and they, they mentioned so testosterone and yeah, but here here's the thing, Tim. I believe that the lady could have just said this. Look, you know, yesterday Brett Kavanaugh rape somebody, and tomorrow he's going to rape somebody too, or as soon as he gets on Supreme Court, he's going to do it too. But he's a Republican, and he's going to vote the conservative way, and if we don't confirm him, then the, Republican, the Democrats may take control, and there'll be another Ruth Bader Ginsburg, somebody that won't rape anybody, but they'll vote like a Democrat, and that's all that matters. Tim, is that honestly about where we're at? It's not really about Brett Kavanaugh's well, behavior. You know, it's going to be man, excused man. just because that's who they want. When Donald Trump went into office, we went off into an ab 
abyss where morality does not exist in some circles anymore. I have had evangelical Christians look me square in the eye and say, yes, we know that everything, all this stuff about Donald Trump is true, but we're willing to live with that because we can get our judges and things like that and the legislation that we want passed. Now, what kind of moralistic equivalency is that in any form of reality besides none but yes that's where we're at so willing to win so willing to discount the other side first of all i want them to remember something constitutionally this woman has a right to petition the congress They need to read the Constitution. It's in the Constitution. She can do that. And if she has information like this, yes, she should come forward. I applaud her if if what she said is true, you know, that, that she's come forward with this because she hasn't been granted any special favors by doing it. Look at how she's been treated. And, and so I get back to this, and, and we need to consider this. It, why would she do this? If it's not true, why would she do this? That's the one exactly. thing I can't get by. I mean, to go through all that she's going through, to have death threats, to have to move out of her house and and go somewhere else where nobody knows where she is, to... Uh, just destroy her life. I mean, she's a psychologist at a big university. I mean, she has a doctorate degree. Her, her whole life could just be wiped out. They keep talking about his life. What about her life, guys? What about that? So I wonder. I, that's a question that's got to be answered for me. If it's not true, why why would she possibly do it? There we go. Yeah, because I mean, to me, here's what could happen. Let's say that the, the um, information is so damning and so believable that he either pulls his nomination or Donald Trump pulls the nomination. He withdraws, you know, wanting to be on the Supreme Court. They vote him down, whatever it is. They're still going to put up another conservative just judicial nominee. Um, they right. have until January. November is not the deadline on this thing because um, – you know, they'll have it until they actually lose power, which will be sometime in mid-January. Now, and then, of course, they're going to have the cloud hanging over. It'll be him and Clarence Thomas will both serve with a cloud over their heads, and this thing will haunt them for election cycle after election cycle. Anytime he gives an opinion, he'll be known as the rapist if this testimony is ends up being believed by, you know, majority uh, or more of the American public. So... It's really going to be a stained, um, you know, serving. And I wonder this. Let's say that the testimony was just so ironclad. We found out so so much information that if this was a court of law, that a jury would convict him. I mean, it's that, you know, ironclad to where it looks like this happened. How do Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Elena Kagan, uh, Justice Sotomayor, the, the, female, the females on the court, how are they going to feel about serving with him? I mean, could they actually plausibly say, we don't feel safe in this work environment? And I know they're not 17, he's not 17. I mean, they're just a different time. But still, could they plausibly make a case about saying they don't feel this is a safe environment? And what would that do to the Supreme Court? Catherine? Well, that's an interesting twist. (laughs) I... uh... I um I I just don't think that if he were seated that 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 would come up. But you know, I I can't say for sure. I I don't know how what the response would have to be. I guess the 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 response would probably be some kind of um security. So I mean, I I don't think uh you know some some kind of you know uh 
never, you know, he's never alone with anyone or something like that. I, I don't know that it would, it could remove him if he's seated. Now there are people who are saying that if the Democrats take the Senate, this was one of the things that came up on the morning show today, that they could try to impeach him if they, if, if he was seated before, um, before the election and, you know, before the, the, if we take back the Senate before that, they could impeach him. But I, I just don't see that, um, that if the evidence is so strong that it wouldn't put fear in the, in, in those three really strong or four strong women, or three, I don't think that he would get seated, but it's an interesting scenario. Yeah, and one more point on this um, before we welcome our guest. This was – Donald Trump's had two chances now to appoint a woman, and that means that you have three women on the high court, and all three were appointed by Democrats, even though the first woman um, was – Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed by Reagan, a Republican. Uh, that kind of also is going to continue to send a message that Republicans have had all these chances, uh, two or three by Bush, two by um, – or one by George H.W. Bush, two now by Donald Trump, and they've you know, appointed zero women, and Clinton won and Barack Obama two. They've uh, you know, been much more diversified in their gender balance uh, given the chance. So I think that also sends a message. Well, let me welcome back our guest, or welcome our guest back to the Kudzu Vine for I don't know how many times. We keep having him back because he gives us some of the best information of any guest we have. Tom Jensen, welcome, Tom. Hey, good to be with you all. Yeah, good to have you on. Well, right off, we're going to do things a little different. I'm not going to ask the first question. I'm going to pass it directly to Tim. Tim? Good evening, Tom, and uh, the day after... I'm sure you're still glowing over that big Carolina win, eh? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to glow about anything related to Carolina football this year, but sometimes when two <laughs> terrible teams play each other, one of them has to win. There we go. <laughs> um, I can assure you that yesterday I saw a good and a terrible team play, and the <laughs> inevitable happened. But with all of that said um, – up to this point in the show today, we have talked about one subject and one subject only, and that is this circus that has erupted, that all of this stuff that's happening with the Kavanaugh um, confirmation hearings and, and all of that. Um, so all I'm going to do here is just throw out a name at you, and then I'm going to have you take the floor and explain to us how that all ties in and what happened with this person. And the name is Garrett Ventry. Take the floor, sir. Okay, so uh, a couple years ago during the Republican presidential primaries, we would occasionally have this troll kid tweet at us on behalf of Marco Rubio. Like if we had a good poll for Donald Trump in the primary, bad from Marco Rubio, this kid would like incessantly tweet at us, Garrett Ventry. And uh, I really didn't think about Garrett Ventry for the last two years after the primaries were over until yesterday. Uh, It was reported that uh, he was fired from his job helping uh, the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee shepherd the Kavanaugh nomination to the Senate. Uh, And what it turns out has happened in Garrett Ventry's life over the last two years is he went from being a volunteer for the Marco Rubio campaign to then being a quote-unquote social media advisor to the House Majority Leader in the North Carolina House. And I did not realize that – really didn't realize that any legislator needed a taxpayer-funded social media person, but – Maybe if you told me that the House Speaker had a taxpayer-funded social media person, I'd say, okay, whatever. But I didn't know there was such a thing as you know, uh, lower-level legislators having a, a taxpayer-funded social media person. But Garrett Ventry was doing that last year. Uh, if Republicans want to cut waste in government, that position might be a place to start. 
Uh, <laughs> but anyway, he got fired from his job as the social media advisor for the North Carolina House Majority Leader uh, because he had a sexual harassment uh, scandal. And he lied Oops. about his resume, too. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, he gets fired from this, I would assume, inconsequential job uh, in the North Carolina General Assembly last year. And somehow one year later, he's on Fox News representing the Senate Judiciary Committee getting the Kavanaugh thing uh, through the Senate until, you know, he was dealing with Kavanaugh getting derailed by uh, – uh, sexual misbehavior allegations until Ventry got derailed by his own sexual misbehavior allegations. But uh, in some ways it's just so symbolic of the Trump era that this totally unqualified sketchy person just rises so meteorically. I guess that is just kind of how things roll these days in Republican circles, but some people do come back down to earth. And I guess that's what happened with Mr. Ventry since he got fired from his job yesterday. (laughs) You know, Tom, when I when I, when I was reading this story, and, and part of it you had uh, on social media, uh, I was thinking that same thing. How did this person go from being, you know, an unpaid volunteer, which there's millions of those out there that's harassing, you know, your polling company, uh, <laughs> to – I mean, the the front page of the biggest story of the year probably so far, and in the Supreme Court in 27 years, how does he get there? Is it symbolic of of the Trump era that that the door's been thrown wide open and that just anybody can walk in it? Well, I think absolutely, like, the biggest reason the Trump administration has been a mess so far is Trump himself. But absolutely another big part of it is there's just a willingness to put people who are totally unqualified and in some cases totally sketchy into these positions that I don't think anybody ever would have been put into in a previous administration, and that includes both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, it's almost like competency and experience is a negative for people getting hired <laughs> exactly. into key roles sort of surrounding this administration. And, you know, even if you don't like uh, George W. Bush or his dad or Ronald Reagan, for the most part, I don't think they were just across the board putting in these sorts of people who are just total jokes to be serving in high uh, positions in government. And, buddy, uh, no one could have said it better than you just said it. And and I thank you, Tom, for bearing with us and clearing that up for us, because normally that's not the type of thing that you discuss on our show. But we appreciate (laughs) you doing it. Now to get to some more, quote, mainstream uh, questions, I'm going to throw it over to David and Catherine. I may come back later for another question. Go ahead, guys. Hey, well, good news. I, I'm halfway there to getting a job on Fox. I'm definitely inconsequential <laughs> enough, but hopefully I'm not sketchy enough. Um, well, in all seriousness, let me kind of piggyback on this since you're the polling guy, uh, not about this Garrett character. Um, but the polling you may have either done or read, because I know you see a lot of the polls, polls too, sometimes before they even come out. Um, how is the Kavanaugh process that we've seen so far uh, playing in the polls? Well, he's the most unpopular Supreme Court nominee basically in the history of polling. For the most part, when people get appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, voters just sort of assume that they're qualified and say, yeah, I support them being confirmed. And even before any of this recent controversy came out, Kavanaugh really was polling in a pretty uh, mediocre way. Voters were about evenly divided on his nomination. You'd have 40% or so say they wanted him confirmed, 40% or so say they didn't want him confirmed. And in the last week, as these allegations have come out, definitely the tide has sort of moved against him. There was even a Fox News poll that came out today that said voters opposed uh, Kavanaugh's confirmation by 10 points. Uh, So definitely this is having an impact on public opinion. Uh, We've less been doing national polling about the nomination than 
doing some polling uh, surrounding some of the specific senators who are kind of seen as being on the fence. And we did a Maine poll in August and found that about by five or six points, Maine voters wanted Susan Collins to vote to uh, reject Kavanaugh. And then we polled Maine again this week after all these new uh, pieces of information had come out. And Maine voters said by 15 or 16 points that they wanted Collins to uh, reject Kavanaugh. So there's been about a 10-point shift for, I think, maybe the senator who's most on the hot seat with this uh, particular issue. And it really is something that I think could be a transformative issue in the political career of someone like Susan Collins, because what's sort of funny about her situation is that Democrats actually like her better than Republicans. She wanted to run for governor of Maine this year, and she didn't because she wouldn't have won the primary election. Uh, So her strength as a politician has been based on her appeal to Democrats. And if she votes to confirm Kavanaugh, uh, that's really the kind of thing that could make that sort of appeal go away. And we saw this happen uh, so many places sort of in the opposite direction and 2008, 2010, Democrats in more conservative areas who've been able to stick around forever, and then if they voted for Obamacare, that was that. It didn't matter how popular they'd been in the past. People were just willing to turn them out over that. It's going to be interesting to see if Collins ends up voting for this nomination, if this is an issue that has a similar effect on her career, where previously she just seemed like she was unbeatable, and then she cast that unacceptable vote and sort of lost all that appeal that she had had across party lines. Mm. Yes, and that's going to be interesting to see as this unfolds. Well, speaking of Senate races that are very, very interesting, one of, to me, the most interesting races is in Texas. And you did a poll uh, this past week, and there's been a lot of polling in Texas, and it's kind of been all over the place. But y'all's was kind of – pretty much kind of more in the the in line in the middle where you showed Ted Cruz under 50, but up about three points. Um, tell me about your findings and anything else within that you found. And then tell me about looking at other things where you think the race is. Sure. Uh, we've done a few polls there recently and have generally found Cruz up by three or four points. Uh, and as you say, he's close to 50%, but he's not over it. Uh, It's basically a situation where uh, Beto O'Rourke, if he's going to win, probably needs to get about 15% of people who voted for Trump to come over and vote for him. And right now he's at more like 9 or 10% of people who voted for Trump are coming over to vote for him. So he's doing a better job of winning over voters who voted Republican last time, certainly than Ted Cruz is of winning over voters who voted Democratic. If you voted Democratic in 2016 in Texas, for the most part, you're not going to vote for Ted Cruz this time around. Uh, So it's just a question of whether O'Rourke can win over enough of those normally Republican-leaning voters to get a 10-point shift in Texas from 2016 to 2018. Because one thing that was interesting in the 2016 election is that even though Democrats obviously did Uh, worse nationally than they had in either 2008 or 2012 with Barack Obama, Texas actually moved Democratic in 2016, even as the country as a whole was moving Republican. In each of Barack Obama's elections, he lost Texas by about 12 points. Hillary Clinton only lost Texas by nine points. So it moved three points Democratic, even as the country as a whole was moving two or three points more Republican. So we see that trend happening where Texas is getting more competitive for Democrats. It's just a question of whether a work's quite going to be able to take that from minus nine to plus one. But even if he just takes it from minus nine to minus three or minus four, I think it makes it clear that we are getting closer and closer uh, to the point where Democrats might actually be able to win something in Texas for the first time in about uh, 20, 25, 30 years uh, since they won a governor or Senate race there. Yes, kind of a follow-up on that. Your, your numbers were just fascinating with how many voters he or what percent he needs to switch over. What's the number he could get to to switch over? Like, let's say if he got to 12, what's the turnout numbers he could look at? I mean, is there a way that he can turn out more voters and then some Republican suppressed turnout and he doesn't have to flip 16? Is there any scenario like that that you know of? 
Yeah, no, that's a really great point, and that that really sort of encapsulates the midterm election in the whole country and not just in Texas, is what Democrats need to do to have the kind of election that they want to have is certainly part of that is flipping over Trump voters. But as we know, most Trump voters are pretty set in their way, so you're not necessarily going to win, especially in difficult territory, just by flipping Trump voters. But if you can have an electorate that was that is more democratic than the electorate was in uh, 2016, that, in addition to flipping a few Trump voters, is sort of the uh, the formula for victory in some of these tougher places. So this is sort of an extreme example. But the way that Democrats won the Alabama Senate race uh, wasn't that necessarily very many Republican voters voted for Doug Jones. But uh, Donald Trump had won Alabama by 29 points, and the people who turned out to vote in Alabama in the Senate election in December had only voted for Donald Trump by 12 points. It was a 17-point more friendly-to-Democrats electorate than who had turned out the previous year, and that more so than Republicans themselves actually voting for Doug Jones is how Democrats won. It was was more just an engagement advantage. And – That's happened a lot for Democrats in places, not to that extreme, but like in Virginia, a big part of how Democrats were able to go from winning the presidential race in the state in 2016 by five points to uh, winning the governor's race in the state last year by nine points uh, was that, again, uh, the people who turned out were a little more Democratic than uh, the people who had turned out the year before. So if O'Rourke can turn this state that voted for Trump by nine uh, into an electorate that only voted for Trump by five or six, uh, then you're definitely then uh, have a lot less work to do to win over Trump voters. Yes, and I'm, to be on the record, I'm pro both. I think you switch voters over and you try to push that base. Suppressing the other group's base, you kind of have to leave that to the other side unless you want to do uh, illegal or dirty (laughs) pack, which I'm not in favor of. Um, one more thing no, before I pass it to Catherine and then on Tim. Yes, is um, Arizona, uh, I know you did some polling there. In particular, I know they have a governor's race, but more interested in the Senate race. Uh, there, Republicans avoided um, having two very, very unattractive candidates, um, but they got the more moderate of the three candidates. And so it looks like it's um, a still a competitive election with Democrats having a slight lead. What are y'all finding? Yeah, that's definitely how I feel about that election is that uh, um, Democrats do have a narrow advantage, but it's not so wide that you can really feel confident saying six weeks out from the election, yes, they're going to win that seat. Uh, The one Republican-held seat that I do feel quite confident about for Democrats is the Nevada Senate race. Uh, We've consistently found Jackie Rosen leading Dean Heller by about three to five points there uh, in Heller's reelection campaign. And Nevada is a state that uh, Democrats aren't really ever going to win there by 10 or 12 points, that kind of thing. But Democrats do have an advantage. And in a normal sort of year, uh, like a neutral political climate year nationally, Democrats are generally going to win in Nevada. Uh, They're only going to lose in Nevada if it's a really bad year for Democrats, like 2014 was or something like that. So this is not only uh, a neutral year, but actually a positive year for Democrats nationally. So I just don't think uh, Dean Heller is going to be able to hold on sort of in that climate. And I don't think that uh, Republicans are going to be able to hold on to the governor's office. And Republicans are really hoping to pick up a couple of Democratic-held House seats in Nevada uh, this year, and I don't think that's going to happen either. So it's one of those things where even though uh, Democrats might only win by three or four, uh, it's it's going to be really hard for Republicans to make up that three or four point advantage. So uh, I think Nevada is the best pickup for Democrats, and then Arizona uh, after that, and then uh, Texas and Tennessee are probably about tied after that. Yes. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pass it to Catherine, and she may have questions about one of those states. Catherine? Hi, Tom. Nice to have you on again. Always good always to be good with to you. Have the returning champion. Um, <laughs> I can't, you know, I got to ask about Georgia, about our governor's race. Have you? What are you seeing, and what, what's your interpretation of the the 
governor's race here in Georgia? I mean, I definitely think it's a 50-50 kind of race. Um, We were talking about how Texas had moved more Democratic than the rest of the country, even as the rest of the country had been moving more Republican. The same thing happened in Georgia in 2016. In 2012, Barack Obama lost uh, Georgia by eight points to Mitt Romney. Uh, But then in 2016, Hillary Clinton uh, only lost Georgia by five points. So Democrats had a three-point improvement in Georgia from 2012 to 2016. So that general trend of uh, things getting more possible for Democrats to win there is something that's happening in Georgia. Uh, I think something that was really encouraging uh, for Democrats was that in the primary in May, I think uh, out of all the votes that were cast in the primary, Democrats cast something like 48 percent of the vote. That may not sound that impressive, but I believe, and I, I think Tim and I talked about this at the time, uh, I think in 2016, Democrats had only cast 38% of the primary vote mm-hmm. in Georgia. So to have that 10-point increase in the share of the primary vote that Democrats cast, I think, shows the extent to which uh, Democrats maybe are a little more energized. And also, with Georgia having open primaries, it's not necessarily just Democrats being more energized, but people who maybe usually vote in Republican primaries might have wanted to go vote in the Democratic primary, which I think is is generally a positive sign for Democrats as well. Uh, I think talking about this uh, motivation, motivation, changing the electorate game versus uh, getting Trump voters to flip sort of game. I think that for Stacey Abrams in particular, if she's going to pull out a win, it's going to have more to do with changing the electorate than uh, than getting a lot of Trump voters to come over and vote for her. Um, you know, it's, it's just a reality that we saw in 2016 that a lot of more conservative voters are not particularly willing to vote for a female candidate. Uh, and those folks who are hesitant to vote for a female candidate, I think, uh, whether they'd admit it to you or not, are probably really hesitant to vote for a black female candidate. Uh, but one thing that certainly has always been uh, true in Georgia for the most part uh, is that white voters participate in the voting process at a higher rate than African-American voters. So if, uh, you know, if a couple hundred thousand African-Americans who didn't bother to vote for president in 2016 are so motivated by Stacey Abrams that they come out to vote this time, that is her path to victory, is to get people out who generally would never vote in a midterm election. Uh, and, I, you know, I think she has a shot. Mm. And I think that's her her um, strategy. Is th- that's exactly her strategy is to get those non-voters out to vote. Um, are there what are the other races that you think are really interesting? I always like to ask you that because you have such a you know eye on everything. What what do you think? Uh, what are we going to be watching late into the night on, in November? Well, I really uh, am guessing that on the House front, we're not going to be watching very late into the night, at least when it comes to who's going to have power or not. Uh, I think that Democrats are not only going to take control of the House, but I think they're going to take control of it by a pretty healthy margin. They need to pick up about 25 seats to get a, to get a majority, and I think that's going to end up being closer to uh, picking up 40 seats. And I think one thing that's been interesting over the last few weeks is seeing that some of these pretty entrenched Republican incumbents in, uh, in Democratic trending areas are just going to get blown out this year. They don't even have a chance. So like uh, Mike Kaufman, the congressman from Colorado, Eric Paulson, the congressman from Minnesota, Kevin Yoder, the congressman from Kansas, all those guys have been in for at least four terms, and they've never really had that close of an election before. All their districts voted for Hillary Clinton, uh, and it used to be that people would say, okay, I'm voting Democratic for president, and I'll vote for Republican for the House, and I'll sort of split my ticket that way. And all of those people who maybe voted for those Republican incumbents in the past because of that dynamic, this time around are just voting Democratic across the board. They're not splitting their tickets anymore. Uh, So it's interesting to see that some of these Republican incumbents already look like they're pretty much – pretty much gone, even with a a lot of time uh, remaining until the election. Uh, One thing that I think people might find particularly interesting on election night uh, is, again, it's six weeks out and things could change. But I think if the election was today, uh, Democrats would win two congressional seats in suburban Texas, the 7th Congressional District in uh, suburban Houston, I think, 
the Republican incumbent John Culberson would lose to the Democrat Lizzie Panel Fletcher. And in the 32nd district in suburban Dallas, I think uh, that the Republican Pete Sessions, who didn't even have an opponent two years ago uh, and, uh, and has been pretty high in Republican House leadership, uh, I think he's going to lose to the Democrat Colin Allred, at least if the election was today. So I think that's one thing that's going to be interesting in November is that some of these Republicans who have been around forever and are in areas that even two years ago were never thought of as being potentially competitive uh, for Democrats, I think you're going to see some of those places start to flip. Well, also a lot of eyes on Texas on election night, I guess. We're all going to be looking for at Beto and also those congressional seats. Well, I'm going to pass it to Tim. I know he has some questions for you. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Tom. Tim always has questions for you, Tom. Uh, I got to ask you about this. Considering the fact that you are sitting in the state capital of the most purple state in the country, I got a feeling you think that something significant is going to happen there on election night. So tell me about North Carolina. What are you looking for there that night? Well, I think the most interesting thing that might happen is uh, maybe the biggest surprise on election night last year in Virginia wasn't that Democrat swept governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general. I think the biggest surprise was that people expected Democrats to maybe pick up five or six six seats in the state legislature, uh, and they ended up picking up 14. Uh, And I think something similar like that could happen in North Carolina this year. Uh, I I, I joke, but I'm serious, too, that I think Democrats could pick up anywhere from zero to 23 seats uh, in the North Carolina State House. And the reason I say that is because that's how many races are in single digits. Uh, So there are there aren't really any seats that you can point to and say, oh, there's a 100% chance that Democrats are going to pick up that seat uh, from the Republicans. But there's so many seats that are really in sort of the highly competitive category uh, that for the first time in eight years, uh, I actually think there's a chance Democrats could take control of the North Carolina House. There's a very small chance. Uh, but if you'd asked me that in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, I would have said absolutely zero, not Point one, not point zero zero one, not point zero 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 one. I would have said absolutely zero. Uh, and this year, it's in the realm of possibility because there's so many races that are so competitive. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for those of us in the state, we're most interested in the state level. Uh, but there's also three congressional races here that uh, that Democrats have a really serious chance in. And it's really sort of a good lesson in the risks of gerrymandering because. Basically, what Republicans did with their gerrymandering efforts in North Carolina was they tried to draw themselves as many seats that in a normal election they'd win by 10 points as possible. So they drew themselves all these 10-point advantage seats, and now we're in a political climate that's about 10 points more Democratic than normal. So all these seats that they uh, drew themselves to win by 10 points are all of a sudden competitive this year. And that's actually across the country a big part of why Democrats have so many chances this year is that the sort of greediness of the Republicans with the gerrymander might come back to bite them this time around because a lot of those districts that uh, they thought they drew in such a way that a Democrat could never win were in such a strongly Democratic political climate that Democrats do have a chance to do that. And one final note in North Carolina about people sort of uh, causing their own trouble – Uh, Republicans passed a bill earlier this year to make it so that there would not be any primaries for uh, judicial elections in the state and that everybody would just run together on one ballot in the general election. So in our North Carolina Supreme Court race, which is the premier statewide race, we've ended up with one Democratic candidate and two Republican candidates, uh, and a plurality wins. It's not a situation where you have to get 50 percent or anything like that. So I think the Democratic candidate is going to win easily uh, for the North Carolina Supreme Court, and that's actually going to uh, give Democrats now a five to two advantage on the North Carolina Supreme Court, which is wow. a little bit of a check on everything that uh, other people are trying to do in state government. But it's just sort of a 
funny situation where Republicans were playing games and passed this law to change how the judicial elections were done. And the upshot of that is that they're almost definitely going to lose the Supreme Court race because of the changes they made. Yeah, well, the the $40 million question here, Tom, to to continue what you're talking about, you talk about all these single-digit races. We see a lot of that in wave years, and suddenly all those single-digit races seem to break in one direction, and that's the direction that the wave is going, of course, because landslides don't stop at state lines. And so what I'm getting <laughs> around to is this. There's been much talk this year about a huge enthusiasm gap. Are you seeing that in your polling, and how pronounced is it if you're seeing it? Well, we definitely are seeing it, and it's something that we're seeing particularly in suburban areas across the country. Uh, So I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of races for Congress and state legislature and that sort of thing that look close right now really may end up going pretty strongly Democratic. That includes uh, legislative races, for instance, in the Atlanta suburbs. There's a bunch of districts that Hillary Clinton won in uh, 2016 that have always had Republican legislators that I think there's a pretty decent chance those might flip to Democrats this time around. Uh, So Mm -hmm. definitely uh, uh, what you just outlined about what happens in wave election years is definitely true. Uh, so I, I think that as good as people are already expecting things to be for Democrats, I actually think it's more likely on election night that things are going to end up being even better for Democrats than expected uh, than that it ends up being a disappointment just because uh, that's what happens in midterms. In 2006, everyone knew it was going to be a good year for Democrats. It ended up being an even better year for Democrats in 2010 and 2014. Everyone knew it was going to be a good year for Republicans, but it ended up being even better for Republicans. And I think the odds are that you'll see something like that happen again this time around. And and the unpopularity of the president is still the driving force behind all of this. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. And uh, and beyond Trump himself, the biggest issue for Democrats that I think really has driven this being such a good election cycle for them is the Republican effort to mess around with health care last summer, yeah. I, I think, just really turned voters against Republicans in a way that they haven't recovered from yet. And it's a familiar story. 1994, Republicans didn't like what Bill Clinton did about health care. Democrats got creamed in 2010. Voters didn't like what Barack Obama did about health care. Democrats got creamed. This time it's going to happen the other time around. Voters didn't like what Donald Trump and Republicans were trying to do to health care. And this time Republicans are going to play uh, pay the price. Healthcare really uh, is something that has just turned out to be a pretty defining issue in quite a few midterm cycles. Wow. Thank you for those astute points. And with that, let's throw it back to David to close the segment out. David? Yes. Well, Tom, thank you for being on. And before I let you go, if people want to read your um, polls uh, you know, throughout the time when you're not on the Kudzu Vine, tell them a few ways to do that. Probably the best way right now is to uh, go visit our Twitter account at at PPP polls. Uh, We've had sort of a transition in how our company uh, operates over the last few years. We used to do a ton of polls just on our own and put them on our website. Uh, Now we are much more involved in uh, hired client work. In the last week, we did 85 polls for various clients. Uh, So we don't have time to do the polls that we used to just do on our own and put out there and a lot of the time our clients are so kind as to decide to release the polls that we do for them uh so our twitter account's a good place to see those polls that uh that they do decide to release in the last few weeks we had some uh congressional polls that we did in minnesota some congressional polls that we did in florida so that's the that's the best place right now to sort of keep up with what we're finding yes and if i'm not mistaken i already follow you with our Kudzu Vine Twitter account because I often see the polls and are fascinated by them. Uh, well, thank you, Tom, for being on the show again. Well, Thanks, thank Tom. you all so much. Hope, hopefully it'll be a good last six weeks, and the next time we talk, there will be good things to celebrate. Yes, That's sir. Right. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank all you. Right. That was Tom Jensen, uh, public policy polling. Got time for one more topic. 
And, man, what an interesting one. Uh, in the past few days, <laughs> they have released some ads in Arizona where six different people and different lines of work <laughs> all speak out about um, a congressman they're familiar with, uh, Paul Gosar. And you're watching the ad, and you're like, and because uh, they had the headline on Political Wire when I saw the first ad, and I'm like, well, you know, they don't like Paul Gosar's water policy or health care policy. You know, okay, I'm sure it's not anything I'd agree with, but what else is new? And then they go, that's my brother, that's my brother, that's my brother. Six of his siblings um, not only disagree with him, but <laughs> endorse the opponent's and did so in a television commercial. Then, Catherine, you found a different one where they speak out against Paul Gosar. Now, Paul's not alone. Mama came to his defense in the last day, so she's on that side of the table at Thanksgiving. Um, I have never heard of anything like this where they disagree so much that they would speak out against their brother um, and his policies, and then he just railed against them, called them leftist and socialist. I guess that's the new Republican playbook. You call the Democratic, uh, you know, usually candidate, but in this case, sibling, a socialist, and, and that's what. So he runs against his own siblings the way you would run against the candidate. Catherine, I, like I said, you had found the other ad, which was probably even worse. Uh, what did you make all this? It's crazy, isn't it? Like, I mean, that guy. I guess I've heard from a friend whose sister lives in uh, Arizona that. He is really a jerk, and um, <laughs> and like he's one of the really bad ones. So, I guess you know, I guess the ones who know you the best are the ones who can uh, criticize you, right? Your family. Uh, yeah, I was surprised. I wouldn't want to be at Thanksgiving at their house. Yeah, it, it <laughs> definitely sounds like a ma- a mess. Um, Tim, what were your thoughts when seeing these ads? Well, the the ads were, you know, hard hitting, and and uh, the, the, especially that one ad that that you just laid out going into this segment, it it, it was very hard hitting and pretty effective when they all revealed who they are. But his response, I mean, this <laughs> is their brother saying Stalin would be proud, and they ain't nothing <laughs> that but was disgruntled funny. Hillary supporters, and they hate President Trump, and I, I'm with you. I, I don't believe I've ever seen anything like this. Not not so many members of a family. You've seen like maybe one member of a family uh, do something like that, but six, six brothers and sisters um, did you see the varied backgrounds they all were from? I mean, as, as far as their jobs and things like that, mm-hmm. and and they're, the, all that's connecting them is that they're brothers and sisters to him. And huh, like Catherine said, who knows them best? You know, your family <laughs> does. I I I, <laughs> I I I don't know if it'll flip the district or anything, but uh, I'd say out of the year so far. What do you think? Yeah, just because of the content, not because of the, the way they cut it. I mean, it was just you're yeah. given uh, the material to work with. Um, yeah, I don't know anything about this district, if it's a, a competitive district and this kind of thing would flip it, um, but it, it was fascinating. You'll get him in the news, and it could be one of those issues that kind of cut, or these situations, I'll say, that kind of cuts where it's kind of like, you know, I, I don't even know, I might agree with Paul Gosar on a few things, but Good gracious, if his family doesn't like him that much, what's going on? Um, uh, it, it was just kind of fascinating, although it was kind of interesting to think that six members of this family, uh, and actually it's seven because one of the people, one of the siblings that was not in the ad was a Democratic nominee for another office in another state. Um, you know, they all, <laughs> Democrats, he's a Republican Congress uh, congressman, Mama, uh, I guess she's an old Goldwater supporter then if, uh, with this. Uh, it's just kind of an interesting family dynamic there, given how you know polarized our country is from different facets that this family yeah, really split up like this. Um, yeah. One of the more interesting races now to watch uh, in the country to see how this one turns out, because um, sometimes something will catch your interest 
or your eye and you'll remember it. I think that's going to be one. Just like when um, Tom mentioned Colin Allred, I put that together. That's the former NFL player that left uh, football. Mm-hmm. Against. He was, you know, decent player, but not a big star by any means. And he's running for office, and he really has a command of the issues. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just remembered hearing his name when Tom was speaking. So that's going to be now be one of these races that I'll have some background on to um, want to find out more about. Well, uh, thanks again to Tom Jensen for coming on. And until next week, that's been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.